Christ Church, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We made it to Romans chapter 8, and this morning we will consider verse 1. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous text of Scripture. We thank you for the promise that is set forth. And we ask, Lord, that we would not only hear this, but deeply feel the weight of the reality of a right standing with you by grace through faith in your Son. Be glorified, O God, we pray, as your word is proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when we began this series uh, some time ago, I stated that Paul's magisterial epistle to uh, the Romans is the Mount Everest of the Bible. If that is true, then chapter 8 is the summit. Chapter 8 is the summit. It's the mountain peak where we get breathtaking panoramas of God's magnificent sovereign grace and of our profound privileges of union with Christ. Romans chapter 8 clearly tells us who we are and where we are ultimately and surely going. It speaks of future glory as the adopted and spirit-filled sons of God. And it tells us that nothing, absolutely nothing, not, not even the joint powers of hell, can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Indeed, united to Christ through Him who loved us, we are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8 is exactly what the people of God need to hear in this present day, right where we are. Now, beloved, this was deeply comforting truth in Paul's day as It was read and preached in the first century church at Rome. You can imagine the early Christians gathering and and Paul's epistle being read for the very first time as as families gathered and, and listened to this marvelous letter being read. These early believers, of course, faced many challenges in their socio-political context, living in an empire and a, a culture that was polytheistic. And hedonistic, that is, pleasure-driven, pleasure-seeking. Unlike what most of us in this room have experienced in our lifetimes, there were no social or political advantages to being a Christian in first-century Rome. In fact, quite the contrary. These early Christians were often ostracized, marginalized, and persecuted for their faith. It's what we are experiencing more and more of in our own day as the West, as Western civilization has exchanged a Christian worldview which has governed our culture for something very different, namely a secular and pagan worldview. I remember several years ago being rebuked by a fellow believer for using the word pagan in reference to 
the kinds of things going on in the world. But that's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. It's that which is rooted in humanistic, secular, pagan thinking. And the West has exchanged a Christian worldview for this other worldview. It's in part what makes the book of Romans so incredibly relevant for our own day. Dear ones, for 1,700 years, Christianity has been the dominant worldview in Western civilization. This has most certainly been true of our own nation, where the Christian church and biblical morality have played a central role since the earliest days of our settlement and our founding. This past week, as me and my family were visiting Colonial Williamsburg and historic Yorktown and the great state of Virginia, we were so reminded of how the Christian worldview is stamped upon our, our history. The Puritan vision was stamped upon our history. It was a vision that made our nation great, not perfect, not perfect, far from it, but great. It fostered an orderly society where Christian worship, biblical marriage, a godly family, and a strong work ethic were foundational to life and to human flourishing. All of these principles, of course, rooted in Scripture. But things have changed, haven't they? You don't need a PhD in social science to recognize it. Many no longer believe that Christianity is the dominant worldview in America, and I tend to agree with them. How could all of the things be happening now be happening if that were still the case? No, the dominant religion is no longer Christianity. The dominant religion is personal autonomy. It's individual freedom. It's the consequence, the ultimate consequence of what comes out of the alignment that we no longer need God to figure things out. We just need ourselves. This has been thoroughly evidenced by the sexual revolution, identity politics, and intersectionality. Personal experience and feelings are the new basis for morality. We can pretend like that's not the case, but it very much is the case. Personal experience and feelings are the new basis for morality, not the objective truth of God's Word. Everyone has their own version of the truth. I remember this being true, of course, way back when I was first converted, and I began sharing the gospel with my friends in California that I grew up with. And if the response wasn't something uh, pushing back, it was something like this. John, that is so good for you. For you. I'm so glad for you that you found your truth. And, of course, I would try to respond by saying this is not my truth. This is the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But this is what we are seeing happening all around us. People have their own version of the truth, and this has caused and is causing great confusion and disorder. We're seeing the unraveling of our culture precisely because of this very thing. All that the world is offering, especially to young people, and saying, this will give you meaning, 
This will give you an identity. This will make you happy. All of it is actually driving young people down into despair and depression and meaninglessness. If we try to find our joy and contentment and satisfaction and happiness apart from the one who made us for himself, we are on a fool's errand. It's an exercise in futility because only by knowing the one who made us for himself through faith in his son do we actually come to the full realization of who we've been made to be and how we've been made to live and to function as God's creation. But dear ones, amidst all of the commotion, amidst all of the cacophonous notes of the symphony, the discordant symphony of our present evil age, amidst the unsettling and guilt-ridden thoughts of our own consciences, we hear something beautiful. We hear music that is not of this world. We hear the powerful and comforting voice of God in His Word. We hear the glorious promises bookending Romans chapter 8. First of all, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. These are promises to live by. Amen. These are promises to live by. But in order to live by them, we must understand them. And this morning, we are considering verse 1. And the fact that we are no longer under God's condemnation, and so we should not live as we are. We shouldn't live like we are under God's condemnation, because united to Christ, we are no longer under His condemnation. Now, to properly understand where the Apostle Paul is going in Romans 8, we need to recount where he's been. And notice with me in verse 1, this all-important, inspired, conjunctive adverb. Now, I know all of you are getting very excited here to talk about conjunctive adverbs. I had uh, a wonderful secretary in my previous congregation, and she was a uh, stickler for grammar. And anytime I knew I needed a humbling, I would just hand her one of my writings. And it would come back with lots of red ink and she would explain to me how things go, and I was always very appreciative uh, and beat up over those conversations. But I did learn a few things, and this, this conjunctive adverb, therefore, is a very important word. Indeed, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The apostle wants the reader to consider what he's saying in light of what he has already said. But what exactly is he, is he referring to? There's a lot of debate amongst scholars and commentators over what exactly he's referring to and looking back to. 
Is Paul focusing here on what he has just been saying in Romans chapter 7 in terms of the relationship between the law and indwelling sin and how all that works? Or is he referring to something more? Well, the context and the content of verse 1 seem to suggest that Paul, rather than focusing merely on the verses that uh, preceded, actually expands the lens to the previous seven chapters. The therefore in verse 1, as Charles Hodge asserts, refers to the whole previous discussion. It's a summary of all that has been written up to this point. In a way, it's a summary of the entire book of Romans. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, since all mankind are wretched sinners, whether Jew or Gentile, which is what we especially learn from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to Romans 3 and verse 20, and since the law cannot save us, which we've been essentially learning from chapters 5 through 7, but really before that as well, And since God sent His beloved Son to satisfy the requirements of God's law and provide us with a necessary saving righteousness, and since as a perfect lawkeeper He paid the debt of our sins, being condemned for us on the cursed cross, and since through faith we are united to the crucified and risen and ascended Christ, and thus justified with a right standing before God. Therefore, in light of all of that wonderful truth that we have heard, there is now no condemnation for those, for you, who are in Christ Jesus. Charles Wesley, of course, in his wonderful hymn, And Can It Be, declares in the final verse, which we will sing later, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him. It would be great if it said Jesus and most. Jesus and some. Jesus and all in Him is mine. No condemnation, now I dread. Deep down, I believe, because of God's Word, what it teaches us, I believe that every single human being on the face of the earth is made in the image of God and that that image is shattered and that every person in their natural self, men, women, boys, and girls, who are still in their sin, have a shattered image of God and do not have the righteousness required to have a relationship with God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We have an unrighteousness. And every person's deepest need, whether they know it or not, is the forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who came to the world to save sinners like us. We all come into this building on level ground. We are all sinners. We all need God's grace. But to fully grasp the glory of this verse, we must first seek to understand the nature 
of sin and condemnation. We see here these words, there is therefore now no condemnation. And this condemnation is uh, what I point uh, to in my first point here, the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin is divine condemnation. It is important to recognize this. We often will mourn over the consequences of sin, but they really are the mourning over the things that happen in this life. It's an earthly sorrow rather than a true repentance. But the true consequences of sin, the ultimate consequences, is divine condemnation. If it's good news that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, it's important to understand the nature of sin and this condemnation. It's a point of confusion for many. I mentioned earlier that our society has lost its Christian moorings. The secularization of our culture is highlighted through the State of Theology report that was recently put out by Ligonier Ministries. I know uh, just a few weeks ago, my good friend John Tweeddale unpacked this a bit for our adult Sunday school. Uh, if, you, um, if you are able, uh, go and look up uh, this State of Theology report put out by Ligonier Ministries. It comes out every two years and just recently came out, and it gives statistics about where people are generally in the population and then also those who profess to be evangelical Christians. It's quite concerning to see the statistics. In, chap- in, in 2022, when asked if they agree with the statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, 71% of U.S. adults agree that everyone is born innocent In the eyes of God, 71% of adults. This is a nation that's lost its Christian moorings. Well, you might say, well, yeah, those are just regular U.S. adults. What about evangelicals? What about believers? Well, among self-professing evangelical believers, 65% agree with the statement that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65%. I've been thinking a lot about our founding as a nation being up in Virginia for a couple of days this past week. And, you know, that statistic would be (laughs) probably in the mid-90th percentile back in the 1770s and 80s. 65% of evangelicals agree with the statement that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. We've lost our biblical moorings, that we are all born with original sin. That's why the world looks as it does today, because of indwelling sin. This belief that mankind is essentially good strikes at the heart of biblical teaching, not least right here in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we have seen this over and over, haven't we? In Romans chapter 5, we learn that we are in our natural selves united to Adam, that we have the sin of Adam We have original sin. Look with me at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, if you have your Bibles. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then on to verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. There you have it. We are under condemnation in our natural selves 
because we possess the sin of Adam. We are united to Adam in our humanity. Secondly, Paul has taught us that we are enslaved to sin in our natural selves. Romans chapter 6 and verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were slaves to sin. This entire chapter is about this this slavery, this dominion of sin over us in our natural state. Thirdly, we learn that we are captive to or under the law. We are captive to or under the law. Notice in chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us, what? Captive. This is, again, dominion language. We are not born into this world a clean slate, innocent. We are born into this world united to Adam, thus born children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, clearly bear this out. At the end of chapter 3, it said that, As Paul's speaking to the Ephesians, he's saying, this is who we were prior to knowing Christ, dead in our sins, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and by nature, children of wrath. So we are captive to the law. In other words, the law, as that which requires of us perfection, and has its relentless crushing demands that we can never properly answer with that kind of obedience required. And so over and over again, waves of bad news. United to Adam, the one who fell, we fell with him. Enslaved to sin. Sin has dominion over us. It is our master, captive to the law. We see this language all over the Bible, but here in Romans, it is everywhere. In the Greek, this word condemnation is katakrima. Katakrima. Kata, we have the word catechism. Kata means down. Catechism, it means echoing back that which is going down. Katakeo is the, the Greek word for catechism. It's a it's a teaching. It's a the word goes down, then it comes echoes back up from the child. Kata krima, kata down krima, penalty. Condemnation is when the penalty or the judgment is coming down. Because God is a just and a holy God, and his law is good and righteous, and holy as he is, condemnation comes down upon the sinner. But dear ones, here this morning, we are told that this condemnation is no longer upon those who are, what, in Christ Jesus. This is the fruit of grace. No condemnation. We've been seeing this over and over again that 
One of the archetypal governing principles of Paul's writings is union with Christ. We must understand our relationship with God related to union with Christ. We were united to Adam, Romans chapter 5. But by God's grace, through faith in him, which is a gift, we are united to Christ and no longer united to Adam. We are united to Christ. The fruit of being united to Adam was death. The fruit of being under the law was death. The fruit of being enslaved to sin was death. The fruit of being united to Christ is life and grace upon grace and forgiveness. We have union with Christ. We were in Adam, but now we are in Christ Jesus. Romans 6 and verse 5, For if we have been united to Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united to Him in a resurrection like His. One can imagine standing before the seat of God's judgment because this really is a forensic, legal, term in terms of justification and condemnation. This, this has a legal thrust to it. And so there is God sitting at his throne of justice on his eternal bench, as it were, and the, and the gavel is up. And can you imagine standing before him and, and knowing his requirements, knowing the perfections of the law, knowing all of your guilt, which is piled up and saying, Lord, before you bring that gavel down, I just want to tell you about a few good things I did in my life. And can I share all the things I didn't do that all these other people did around me? No, Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says, after this long litany of sins which are true of us all, that no one can be saved by works of the law. And through the law, we are all held accountable to God that our mouths would be stopped. No more excuses. No more justifications. And so before that gavel comes down, imagine the peace and the comfort in your heart knowing that the one who stands nearby represents you. That everything he did He did for you. That your salvation is not based upon anything that you have done or haven't done, but solely on the work that He has done. And so you can say, I'm with Him. I'm united to Him. His righteousness is my righteousness. His blood was spilled to wash away my sins. I am one of your sons because of what Christ has done for me. And so before the gavel comes down, God the Father says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are justified. And the gavel comes down. Justified. Enter your eternal eternal rest. This is this legal or forensic aspect to this union with Christ and, and this word of, of promise. And you can, uh, as one commentator uh, did as I read this past week, 
he said, you know, you can make this a positive statement. So this is a negative statement, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can make it positive by saying, there is therefore justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we have union with Christ. And that's all the security we need. Union with Christ. Our place in heaven is as secure as Christ's place in heaven because we are united to him. And his righteousness is ours. And he has paid for our sins. And so we have union with Christ. Secondly, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Now we are enslaved to Christ. We are enslaved to righteousness. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart and have become slaves of righteousness. You see, in Adam... Under the dominion of Adam and sin and the law, there was only guilt and fear and death and eternal separation from God. That was the realm in which one lives apart from Christ. But united to Christ, now he has dominion over us. He is truly our king. And we possess his imputed righteousness. And because we are in him and possess his spirit, we now want to live for his glory. And we know we don't live perfectly far from it. We still confess our sins every Lord's Day. You're always going to see that in the bulletin. Something's very wrong with your pastor if the confession of sin is not in the bulletin next week. We confess our sin every week because we still have remaining indwelling sin. Sin no longer reigns in us as it did before. But the vestiges of it still remain in us. And this work of sanctification is taking place. But the grounds of our salvation is not how well we're doing in our sanctification. It's the work of Christ for us. So we have union with Christ. We are enslaved to Christ. We are under the dominion of grace. Romans six fourteen. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We are no longer under the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation. We are now under grace. We are under grace, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And this brings us to the now of no condemnation. If you like writing in your Bible, underline and circle the word now. This isn't there. uh, uh, There is therefore In the future, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says now. We don't believe in some kind of a future justification. We do believe that we will enjoy the the full blessings of our salvation when we go to heaven. But we believe in the full justification of sinners in Christ now. In the present day. We have a right standing with God now. We're not waiting for that. No Christian should ever say or think, I can't wait till I have a right standing with God. Because if you are united to Christ, you have that now, presently. We are not waiting to be justified. We are justified through faith in Christ Jesus. We possess this glorious status now. And this is where we find our chief identity as Christian believers. In Christ. 
in Christ. There was an inter- interview a few years ago during the Summer Olympics. Perhaps you saw it. It wasn't too long ago. Sometimes I tell stories. I'm like, man, that was like 25 years ago. That's what happens when you get some gray hair on you. Just a few years ago, these swimmers were being interviewed. They had just won the gold medal. They were being celebrated by the person interviewing them. And when they put the microphone up to the first guy, he said, well, I, before, I say any, before I say anything, I want to say this, that my identity is not in swimming. It's not in winning a gold medal at the Olympics. It's in Christ. He is my life. Whether I win or lose, he is my life. And the, you could tell the, the person was kind of, you know, flustered. And then they go to the next person. And he said, you know, winning a gold medal was great. But my identity is not winning, <laughs> winning a gold medal. It's in Christ. And uh, it was just the most beautiful testimony. And a powerful word into a culture where identity politics has become so angry and polarizing and confused. As Christians, we find our chief identity in Christ, in what he has done for us, not even chiefly in what we do for him. Our identity is chiefly in Christ as his sons, inheritors of his promises and all the blessings and benefits of our salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As I was preparing this week, I was thinking of the passage in Zephaniah chapter 3. You know, Zephaniah is one of those minor prophets where in the beginning, perhaps the, mo- perhaps the strongest language of judgment and condemnation of any book in the entire Bible. And then you come, and this is towards the, 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 the pagan nations and also towards Israel who has forsaken its covenant promises. But then we learn of Israel's joy and restoration in Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17, where it says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Now listen to this. Listen to this, dear ones, as you think about all that's going on in our culture, all that's happening in your life personally. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Many commentators believe that this language of he will quiet you by his love. Actually, the Hebrew is difficult there. And some will translate it. I believe it's better translated that he is quiet in his love. In other words, the thunderous judgment and condemnation that we see in Zephaniah chapters 1 and 2 through the middle of chapter 3 is quiet. There's no more judgment. 
No more thunderous condemnation coming from the throne for those who are in Christ Jesus. How are you righteous before God? The Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Rest in that grace, dear believer. And if you are outside of Christ this morning, if you came into this worship service uh, uneasy, unsettled, and perhaps not really knowing Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, even now I urge you, to turn from your sins and to put your hope, your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ who died for sinners like you and who died for sinners like all of us in this room. Receive his grace and his forgiveness today. And no matter what our society may be turning into, no matter what happens in the elections in November, no matter what health challenges you may be facing or will face in the future, remember this most important promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Dear one, is this the song of your heart this morning? May it be by His grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for this glorious declaration. And we pray, Lord, that by Your grace, we would believe it in the depths of our soul. And Lord, where we do not believe, help our unbelief and help us to walk in Your promises. Even now as we come to Your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.